And so today we're going to jump into a, a teaching here, part two of our series through the book of Nehemiah, A Time to Build, which is all about where we're going as a church, our future, and how each of us can be activated and equipped to fulfill the purpose for which God has created us. Now, before we get into today's teaching, let me, let me just kind of do a 20-second infomercial for tomorrow night's equipping seminar. We're going to be looking at the history of our movement. It's called How We Got Here, looking at the restoration movement. Some of you may be more familiar with its title as the Stone Campbell Movement. That's where we came from, friends. And over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to dive deep on Monday nights and look at some of the the stories. We'll crack open the family photo album and thumb through the pages of seeing where we came from. You'll hear stories perhaps you've never heard before or be reminded of those you've heard. Uh, Some of the things you hear, you'll go, yeah, I like that. Other things you'll go, I don't like that. It's like your great uncle who always would come over with a lampshade on his head. We got those in our church history as well. And so we're going to talk about... Well, um, you know, where does this whole idea of how we do church come from? There's stuff in our past. Uh, why are some churches of Christ a cappella and others are instrumental? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, some of the major splits that occurred. What caused them? You may be surprised by what actually caused some of the division within our churches. And in fact, you may be very surprised to note that we began as a movement that says we want to be united with all people. We don't want to be just... We don't be known by a name on a building. We want to be known as Christians. How did that change for some? And so we're going to talk about all that, and we're going to look at the most impactful event that changed the trajectory of the churches of Christ more than anything else. And so it'll give you a snapshot of really a lot of things, and you'll go, oh, yeah, I see why we do it that way. Oh, I see. Oh, that's... And so we're going to look at our family history starting tomorrow night. If you've not signed up, I hope you will join us. It's going to be a companion to what we are doing here. It is not available online. It's available in person. So if you're able to come, we'd love for you to be there. You can sign up online. If you don't know how to do that, see us in the lobby. We'll help you today. Get signed up and be a part of that seminar. All right. With that said, part two of Nehemiah. Let me give you a little recap. Last week, we began this journey of where we're going as a church by looking at the historic moments in the life of this man named Nehemiah. And we started with the idea, with this truth really, that our city, like the city of Jerusalem in the years of Nehemiah's life, our city is a city with broken down walls. Now I know we love our city. It's a beautiful city with so much to do. It's great people in it. We love our city. But let's be honest. We live in a city with spiritually broken walls. Can I get an amen? We live in a city of relationally broken walls, that you have marriages that are, they're hanging on by a thread. We have familially broken walls where parents and kids don't get along. We have children who do not have homes. We have families that are divided on everything and everyone. We have an opioid epidemic that continues to grow. We have uh, issues with our school systems, great teachers in so many of them, but there's curriculum that questions the validity of what a man is, what a woman is. There's this growing tension and broken walls in our city. We have political brokenness in our city. We have economic brokenness in our city. We have religion and relational and spiritual brokenness. We are in a city of broken walls. And we said the first response, as we see in the life of Nehemiah, and it's reflected through all who follow Christ throughout the centuries, is a broken heart 
followed by bowed heads. That when you see the brokenness, it should create in us this sense of, oh no, something's got to be done. And our first response as followers of God is to bow our heads in prayer. Because as Christians, we know that prayer is not just our last resort. It is our first response. And so we begin in this place of saying, is there a problem? Yes. Do we have hearts that are sensitive to it? We need them. And let's pray about it. And that's where Nehemiah was, because Nehemiah was there. He was living about 800 miles west, excuse me, east of Jerusalem in a city called Susa. He was in the king's palace of the Persian Empire. He had a cushy gig. He enjoyed his job from what we can tell. And yet, as a blue collar or as a, as a, uh, a secular job working person, he gained a pain for the city of Jerusalem that still lie in ruin, and he began to pray that God would work on it. And what I love about this is that I want to show you that Nehemiah, and you like Nehemiah, already have everything you need to begin doing what God has called you to do. Isn't that good news? You don't have to wait. You already have what God needs you to have to do what God wants you to do. And so we're going to look at a text beginning in verse 11 of chapter 1 and following, but it begins with this interesting statement. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, this is very important. When we hear the word cupbearer, some of us may think glorified busboy, picking up the trash of the king or bringing him his beverages. It's more than that. It wasn't just that anyone could do this job. This was a serious and significant job. In fact, this, and I want you to get this, Nehemiah, the man God used to restore city walls and bring about spiritual reform, did not work in a church. Did you hear me? The man God used to bring about change for an entire people group was not a pastor. He was not a priest. He was not a preacher. He was not an elder. He was not a deacon. He did not work in a church. He worked in the palace of a pagan king. Here's where we need to start. Your job is not a liability to God's mission. Your job may be the place where God's mission is seen and explodes in your life. Because it did for Nehemiah. In a few minutes, I'm going to give you a seven-step process to walk through to be able to say, how do I do this? How do I go to work with God. But before we do that, here's the main point for today. Did you know that God has a job and you have a job? Are you ready? God has a job and you have a job. So what's that? Well, here's God's job. God's job is to position you for his purpose. It is God's job to place you where he wants you. And your job is to pursue God's purpose wherever he placed you. God's job is to place you and your job is to pursue where he pl- what he's called you to do. Let's talk about Nehemiah's job as the cupbearer. If you were to say, Josh, I like that idea. After all, cupbearer eats great food, drinks great wine, is in front of the king, and that's got to be a great gig. And it was a great gig until you ate some bad meat or some bad drink. You see, the reason the cupbearer had a job was to make sure that the king was not being poisoned by his food. And if the food was poisoned, then the cupbearer would soon need a pallbearer. He'd die. So it was a great gig until it wasn't. Now, to be the cupbearer, not just anyone could be it. Let me give you a few of the job requirements. You had to be well-versed 
in foreign politics. You needed to understand how Persia and the surrounding countries worked. You had to have a high level of education about the laws of the Persian government as well. This meant that you had to not only be well-educated, you had to be really smart. And by the way, not only did you have to be really smart, you want to know the other requirement to be the cupbearer of the king? I love this one. You had to be really handsome. So what does that mean? Well, if you're beaten with the ugly stick, you cannot be the cupbearer. Great personalities don't get you in. That's the way it works. Now, this was the job of the cupbearer. One more thing, though, that's so very interesting. Did you notice that it's a Hebrew man, a Jewish man, Nehemiah? Out of all the people in the kingdom of Persia, he's the one chosen to be the cupbearer. Why? How does that happen? Well, let me give you a couple things here. First off, obviously, he lived far away. There's a lot of people who could have been chosen. Why was he chosen? Here's why. Let's do a little history. Nehemiah worked for King Artaxerxes I, Langemanus. That's his official royal name, Artaxerxes I. He was the third-born son of King Xerxes. Now, if you know your Bibles, Xerxes goes by a different name in Scripture. The father of Artaxerxes, Xerxes, has a different name. It is Ahasuerus. Let me give you a little context. Ahasuerus was married to a woman named Vashti. She was the queen, but she displeased the king. He got tired of her, kicks her out, and he decides to hold a kingdom-wide beauty pageant. And the lucky pretty girl who he chooses will be the new queen. He just so happens to pick a young woman from Israel named Esther. Artaxerxes, the king for whom Nehemiah works, is the son of Xerxes. Xerxes' wife, Vashti's gone. He brings in a new wife, Esther. Now, Artaxerxes' stepmom is Esther. Are you tracking with me, family? It just so happens that God positions Nehemiah at a point in time and history so that he will be under a king whose stepmom was a Hebrew. This is why we think that he was very ready for a Hebrew to be the cupbearer. Because to be a cupbearer, you had to do these jobs, but you had to be trustworthy. You had to be someone he could, he could rely on. The cupbearer was considered the closest confidant to the king, second only to the king's wife. And Nehemiah has that job. Here's what you need to know. God is at work in where you live and work. This is what Acts chapter 17 says. God made all the nations, all of us, he made everyone. He marked out their appointed times in history. This means when you would live and the boundaries of their lands, meaning where you'd live. So when and where, why did he choose where you would live? Why did he choose when you would live? Well, he tells us so that people would seek God. You are here on purpose by God in this place and time so that others will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is why you are here. God is the one who gave Nehemiah the intellect. God is the one who gave Nehemiah his good looks. God is the one who gave Nehemiah the educational opportunity so he'd be prepared and available as a candidate. And God is the one who put Esther into place and Nehemiah in history at just the right time so he could leverage the relationship and become the cupbearer to the king. Hear me now. You may have been a surprise to your mom and daddy, but you are not a surprise to God. 
He picked you and placed you for a purpose. His job was to position you, and your job is to fulfill and pursue the purpose of God. Let me give you a few details here, statistics. You will work somewhere around 150,000 hours in your lifetime at a secular job or in a day job. If you're a mama or a daddy and you stay home with the kids, if that's your job, it's a lot more than 150 hours. Can I get an oh yeah from all the parents? So you've got 150 hours. That is roughly 40% of your life will be at your job. I hope, I hope you understand God puts you there on purpose. He gave you your intellect. He gave you your opportunities. He gave you your connections. You go, but I don't like my job. He even gave you a boss that's growing your patience. God puts you where you are. I hope you will build a career. I praise God for the way that you're growing and building a business or growing and building your influence. But it would be a tragedy to spend 40% of your life somewhere building a career and never rebuild the walls that God wants you to build through your business. And this is what the text teaches us. That those who have secular jobs, you who do not work up here, you will do greater work than a preacher may ever do because of the position God has placed you. Are we all tracking this morning? Your jobs are not a burden. They're a blessing from God to be leveraged for the kingdom of God. When we talk about where we're going as a church, we first have to say God has placed us all where we are for his purpose. This is your kingdom to look at, Chattanooga. And by the way, this is where you live. This doesn't represent everyone's home, but most of yours. Some of you are a little further out, and we couldn't kind of fit you in the map. I'm sorry. You still belong here. Here's what I want you to see. This map represents the influence of your homes. It doesn't even represent the influence of where you go to school or the jobs you hold. And yet, this is a picture of how God may want to rebuild the walls of this city. There is no way to rebuild the walls of our city from within these walls only. It has to happen where we live, where we work, and where we play. Is everyone tracking with me this morning? Now, I want to give you some great news because this can seem daunting and maybe a little overwhelming, but God, through Nehemiah's life, gives us a seven-step process, a model, if you will, for how to go to work with God. Some of you have taken your kids to work. God's going to take you to work tomorrow. And he gives you seven steps on how to work with God wherever you are. Are Because, as the old cliche goes, if you fail to plan, you plan to what? Fail. It's a cliche, but it's true. So, I want to walk you through this. Now, disclaimer. Uh, I think Rick Warren, I got some of his wording on this because I think he does a brilliant job of some of the words on this, and they're simple. I want you to remember it. So, I'm borrowing some of his words today. So, if it sounds smart, it's probably from him. Okay? We good? Let's move on. Step number one here. Yep. Let's keep going. God's job, position you for his purpose. Your job is to pursue his purpose wherever he placed you. Step number one, pray for God's favor. If you want to know what God's purpose is, if you want to fulfill his purpose, if you want to follow the plan, number one is you pray for God's favor. Notice what it says in verse 11 of chapter 1. He prays, Lord, when he heard what was going on, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant. Now, The rest of it says, and the prayer of all those who fear and love you. That would be you. He's saying, God, listen to the prayers of your people when we pray. Give your servant success today by, say these three words with me. You ready? Granting him 
favor in the presence of this man. First thing you need to know, it is not unholy to ask God for success. It is okay. If you are doing what God is calling you to do, then don't you think God wants you to succeed? Absolutely. You begin by praying to God and asking him for success. Ask him for his favor. Scripture says we do not have because we do not ask. So ask. You say, well, Josh, I don't know what to ask for. I mean, I, I, I just don't know what this thing is that I'm being called into. I don't know how my job can be leveraged for God's glory. I... Well, maybe that's the first thing you ask. God, would you show me how you want me to use my position in this work to fulfill your purpose? You ask him, and you keep asking. And if you do, over time, eventually he will lay an idea on your mind or a burden on your heart And he'll say, now go. You pray for God's favor and you pray for God's blessing and he will do it. Now, when Nehemiah started praying, God gave him clarity of what he ought to do. And God gave him a broken heart for his broken city, didn't he? So as he prayed, God also began to stir in him something more. It wasn't simply a plan, but it was an emotional posture. If you're feeling kind of crusty, if you're feeling kind of dry, Ask God to soften your heart, and he will, over time, begin doing that as well. So number one, pray for God's favor. Number two, prepare for an opportunity and then wait. Prepare for an opportunity and then wait. He goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 2, In the month of Nisan, no jokes this week, four months later, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, what does this matter? This happens... Four months after he begins praying, he begins praying in the months of Kislev, which is November, December of our calendar. It's not until April that God begins to open a door for Nehemiah. You say, so what does Nehemiah do during that time? Well, he prepares. You say, how do we know? We know because when the king is going to ask him, what do you want? Nehemiah has a list. He's like, oh, you're you're asking me? Well, I just happen to have some (laughs) suggestions. He only had that because he had been preparing for what God was going to do. He had been thinking about what God might want to do in him and through him. He'd been praying and he'd been preparing. Now, I love John Wooden's quote. Famed UCLA coach, he said this, When opportunity comes, it's too late to prepare. Have you noticed that it seems like some of the luckiest people you know always seem to get lucky? It's like, well, how does he always get this? And how does she always find that? How does it always seem to work out? Here, here, here's a little thing here. I've learned the more prepared I am, the luckier I, I am in life. It's amazing. My luck goes up the more prepared I am. It's like it, I always got A's on tests. I just got lucky like that when I would actually study for the tests. Anyone know what I'm talking about? You prepare for the opportunity and then wait. Now, the problem is some of us are going to be waiting longer than we want. You say, why four months? Why didn't God just answer it immediately, especially if it's God's will? Hear me now. God often waits in responding to make sure you're serious about what you're wanting. God often will wait in responding to make sure you're serious about what you're wanting. Here's why. Nehemiah, as we'll see in the coming weeks, and I'm just telling you up front, if we do anything for God as a church, we're going to be hit with criticism. We're going to be hit with conflict. That's just the way it is. 
And the bigger the job, the more conflict you will face, which means God's saying, are you sure you want this? If you will not continue laboring in prayer, how do I know you will continue when life gets hard? And so God waits. And then when the opportunity comes, he gives Nehemiah the opportunity to meet in front of the king. Now, here's a question for you as you think about what you're preparing for. You might ask yourself the question, what are some of the conflicts or challenges in my business? What are some of the issues in my neighborhood? What are some of the problems in my family? What are some of the things facing us? Then start to ask God, God, what would it look like for that issue to be resolved in your way? What would it look like if you were king over this issue? That is a way to begin preparing and then being ready for God to move. Now, number three, moving along here. After you've prepared, after you've prayed, the third thing is be ready. Expect fear. Expect fear, but don't let it stop you. Notice what happens. When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. All right, sounds fine. So what happens, Nehemiah? Glad you asked. I had not been sad in the king's presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now notice this. And I was very much, what's that word? What's that word, church? afraid. You say, why was he afraid? God's answering his prayer. Isn't this great news? No. Here's why. There are three reasons Nehemiah was afraid. Number one, it was a capital offense in the Persian empire to come before the king sad. The king was very fickle. He did not want any Debbie Downers. He didn't want any human versions of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Thanks for noticing me. He did not want anyone in his court like that. And if you came with a frown, you might leave without a head. It was a capital offense. Second reason that Nehemiah was afraid, he was about to ask his boss, the king, who we already know is quick with the axe, if he could have paid time off. And not just for a few weeks, months, but years, it turns out. We're going to find out in chapter 5 that Nehemiah is away for 12 years. He's about to ask for a big thing from a guy who's not all that gracious. In fact, if the king rejects your request, it means the king doesn't like you. And so he's afraid because of that, because it's a capital offense to be sad, because he's about to ask for time off. And finally, he is afraid because he's asking the king to reverse a law in their kingdom. You need to know this. The Medes and the Persians had some rules. One of the rules was their laws, once made, could not be unmade. So when you have time this week, open your Bibles and go to Ezra chapter 4. I don't have time to show you today, but what you'll see is that the previous king had made an edict that the walls of Jerusalem were never to be rebuilt. And now now Nehemiah is saying, I'm going to ask you to rebuild the walls and break your own laws. Was he afraid? You better believe it. But I want you to see something here. Leaders move forward not because they're unafraid, but in spite of their fears. You do not need courage if you are without fear, correct? Courage is only something when you are afraid. Courage is not absence of fear. It is doing what is right in the face of fear. It is when you as parents have hard conversations with your kids, knowing it may create a rift but it is the right thing to do. It is having that difficult encounter with a friend because you love them more than the comfort of the friendship. Fear 
and courage go together. This is why Joshua 1.9, God says to Joshua, remember we started the year looking at the book of Joshua, and he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Why? Because God goes before you. So two things. You say, what do I do? If I'm afraid, what do I do? Two things Nehemiah does that I think are very helpful. Number one, but, although I was afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. By the way, by the way, that's a pretty good plan right there. Butter the guy up before you make the request, correct? Just, just word of wisdom. And he says this, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? In other words, the first thing he does is he admits his feelings. Why, why shouldn't I be sad? My world's broken. Of course I'm sad. Hear me now. One of the healthiest things you can do when you are afraid is to admit your feelings. Many of us have bottled our feelings and we are still dealing with the residue that seeps out. It may be because of something that happened to us as children, young adults, and because we have not dealt with it, it keeps spilling over into the rest of our lives. Admit your feelings to God, to a friend, to a counselor, someone. But he admits his feelings. And then the second thing he does is so important here. He says, the king said to me, so what do you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. This is what I call a shotgun prayer. And I love this. Do you notice how Nehemiah, he is a man of prayer. In fact, there are 11 different prayers through the book of Nehemiah. He starts with four months of daily prayer, night and day, fasting and praying for God's work and will. And then in the moment, in the moment, in the moment, what does he do? He pauses and he prays. He's asked the question. Now listen, listen, let me be clear. A shotgun prayer can be something you do at dinner or before bed, and that's important. But you also need consistent daily time with God that is uninterrupted by life. You need both, family. It can't be one or the other. But listen, if you're doing a shotgun prayer, it does not mean that in the middle of a conversation, things are getting heated, life is getting hard. You don't stop, and while the person standing there go, dear God, help me, out loud. That'd just be weird, okay? Instead, in that moment, inside, oh Lord, help. Just help. John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus himself will tell you that the Holy Spirit of God will empower you and give you what you need. Are you asking him for help in those moments? And he will empower you to do so if you will. Step number four, after you've dealt with fear, after you're moving on, decide the destination. You say, what does that mean? Notice what he says in verse 5. I answered the king. By the way, side note. If someone asked you today, what do you need to accomplish your vision? Would you be able to tell them? He says, I answer the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, that's Jerusalem, where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Notice he gives the king his complete destination, a location and an accomplishment. Send me here so I can do this thing, rebuild the city walls. Here's the question. Do you know where you're trying to go? A dream without a clear destination is simply a wish. I would like to be skinny, Great. What does that mean? Have you planned for it? I would like to be financially independent. Great. What does that mean? Have you figured out a dollar amount? Have you figured out a plan for it? 
You need to have a clear destination. It is not that we are unclear in general ideas, but we have not clarified specifically. Here's my question, friend. If your place of employment is a place that God could use for his glory, have you thought about what God might want to do through you? Do you have you already considered your destination? Do you know what God might want to do? Are you able to articulate that to someone else? Here's a very important thing. Leaders, and if you're a parent, you're a leader. If you are in the church, you don't have to have a title to be a leader. People just have to listen to you. If you are a leader, do you know the destination that you are trying to go because other people are following you whether you know it or not? Determine, decide the destination. The number five, oh, sorry, let me just put this up here. I love this cartoon. Guy, he's shooting his arrows, and notice the order of things. It says this, it's easy to make bullseyes. First, you shoot the arrow, then you just take your paintbrush and... See, any of us can shoot at anything and hit it, can't we? But the call of the Christ follower is to say, I know what God has called me to, and I'm going towards it. Might you fail? Oh, yeah. And that's why many of us don't make it clear, because then we won't be disappointed in God or ourselves. But when you choose to trust God and make clear your destination, then you have the possibility of seeing him move in a powerful way. I don't know about you, but I don't want to waste my life playing it so safe that I never get to see God show up. I want a life where when I die, I see that he showed up because otherwise I would not have made it. And I know you want that kind of life as well. It is not enough simply to exist. That is not the same thing as living. Living is saying, God, you've given me a purpose. I have a plan. I need your help to accomplish it. And then when you know the bullseye, then with God's help, you let it fly. Amen? He goes on. After the destination, you have to have number six, set a deadline. Then the king, with this queen beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Notice this, the question, and then the answer. He was specific. Again, a general destination without a time is just a wish. He gives some very specific answers. So here's the question. Based on what God may be doing in your life as you begin to receive a burden for something and how God might use your business or use you to fulfill his purpose, as you get a burden, start to ask yourself the question, what would it look like if I pursued this in six months? What would things look like? Where do I think I should be in a year from now? Where should I be in five years? Now, one of the things I'm learning in my young age is things are going to take much longer than you expect them to take. Anyone else learning that one in their life? Let me just give you an example. Two weeks ago, I said, hey, I'm going to build a feature wall in my house. How hard could it be? Never mind the fact that I don't play with tools ever. Well, here we are two weeks later, and there is still sawdust all over the room. I'm just kind of going to, I think I'm going to give up and like start a new trend. It's called the unfinished chic. It'll be great. You'll see it on Pinterest very soon. We assume things will happen a lot faster than they do, but they don't but you still set a deadline. A destination and a deadline are necessary. Number six, anticipate the obstacles you'll face, friends. You do know you're going to face obstacles, right? (laughs) Let's just do this. If you are a parent, can I see a hand, please? Just go ahead. Hold them up. Go ahead, hold them up. Look around. Every one of you has just said, yes, I have an obstacle in my life. 
the reality is anything worth pursuing is going to cause waves because someone's not going to like what you're doing and there's natural challenges to everything. Notice how Nehemiah handles this part. He is already preparing for the obstacles. He also said to the king, hey, if it pleases the king, meaning I'm about to ask you for something, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates, that's the area around him where he's going to be traveling through, so that they will provide me safe passage until I arrive in Judah. So do you notice he's anticipating to go from Susa to Jerusalem. He's going to have to travel through different regions. And unlike today, I mean, today, if you want to go to New York, you hop in your car, you drive up there, that's fine. Not so back then. You had to have papers to go through the different regions governed by different governors. And he says, give me the legal passage so I don't get stuck between here and there. Notice what else he has anticipated. And may I have a letter to Asaph? Who's that? We'll say in a moment. He's the keeper of the royal park. So he will give me timber or wood to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. So not only does he anticipate needing safe passage and papers, he also anticipates his shopping list. It's like God says, or or he says, well, what do you need? He's like, well, I just happen to have a few things that I'd like to have. I'm going to need some wood. Now, notice he used a specific name. He said, hey, I I need wood and a letter to this guy named Asaph. How did he know this guy's name in that moment? He'd been preparing, hadn't he? He had already been thinking about who will I need to talk to? What are the names? He may have done his research. Let me say something to you. If you don't have your research figured out, don't present your request yet. It's not ready. You need to know the answers. But once you know what you're trying to do and some of the obstacles, you go ahead and present it. But it requires thinking time. This is one of the key things as leaders. And again, you are all leaders in your own places of home, employment, your social circles. You need time to think deeply about what you will face so you can prepare and be ready to lead forward. That is part of what it means to be a godly man or a godly woman. So anticipate the obstacles that you will face. And finally, by the way, this comes from Proverbs. I love this. It says, a sensible man looks for the problems ahead and prepares to meet them. If you want to be sensible, you prepare and you think through. Now, number seven, are you ready? Are you ready for the last point of the day? Are you ready for the sermon to be over? Okay, I know I'll always get an oh yeah from that one. So here we go, you ready? Number seven, step number seven with working with God is simply this. Trust God to meet your needs. Look, we've talked a lot about what you do and you have a responsibility. Let me be very clear. There are too many Christians who are lazy expecting God to do what God has told them to do. You are responsible for your actions. But at the end of the day, it is only God who will make it work or not. I love this passage. It says in Nehemiah 2, 8, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Because God was at work, Nehemiah had a burden. Because God was at work, Nehemiah had time to think and plan and prepare Because he trusted in the God of the Bible and the promises of the Bible. When he faced fear, he knew God was with him. That's why he prayed. And because God was with him, he was given the option to express his request. And then he gave the list. And because God was with him, the king granted my request. 
It is God who changes the hearts of people. It is God who opens doors. It is God who makes a way when there is no way. One of the songs we sing is Waymaker. He is the God who makes a way when we cannot find a way. This is why we trust Him for everything, brothers and sisters. This is why we go to Him regularly. Because He is the one who will meet our needs. This is why the Scripture says, And my God will supply all your needs. We trust Him. And listen, it's easy to trust when you don't need anything. It's when you and I, with our backs against the wall, the future in front of us, say, God, help us because we can't do it on our own, is when we get to see God step on stage, flex his muscles and say, this is why you worship me. We trust God to meet all our needs. I love this passage in verse 9. It says, the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Notice this. Nehemiah didn't even ask for that, did he? He didn't ask God for it. And yet God knew what he needed more than even Nehemiah knew. You're going to forget some stuff. You're going to face obstacles you didn't anticipate. You're going to come under some intense scrutiny. And in those moments, the God who provides is going to give you what you need. I think about all the people throughout my young life, and I know you could list people as well, but the people who have shown up at just the right time to help in a need that I didn't know I needed until that moment. Our God is already at work preparing and planning to fulfill the purpose for why he placed you where he has. You trust him, church. One final verse, and we'll call it a morning. Proverbs 16.1 says, We may make our plans, but say this with me. God has the last word. He's got the last word on all this. I just want to be on the side with him that gets to witness his victory in this city. And I don't want to see all the victories to take place just in this room. I look forward to hearing more and more the stories of what God is doing in your workplace, in your school, in your home. That God's kingdom may come and his will may be done on earth in Chattanooga as it is in heaven.